Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager, and this is a classic episode that we're returning to. It was a fun little one that Robert and I put together about a year ago about a D&D monster called the Mind Flayer. And we decided to say, what if science broke apart a mind flare, looked at its anatomy and its biology. How would that work? Yeah, if you this psychic alien squid creature uh, that uh, that runs amok in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, what if this was real? What can we look to in the actual scientific world to understand it? And and, and you know, what science can we illuminate by looking to the mind flare? And you might be wondering, guys, why are you rerunning this episode and wait, why did this come out on a Friday? Well, it is because and no spoilers here, the Mind Flayer is brought up in the latest season of Stranger Things. And we know that there are a lot of Stranger Things fans out there because last month we did our Science of Stranger Things episode. I, I like to think of you, Joe, and I as like what happens when the kids from Stranger Things grow up and like <laughs> yeah. this is what they do for a living. Uh, and so we thought, hey, you know, let's put this back out there and people who might have binge watched that season in the last seven days We'll go, oh, now I can really dive into what a mind flayer is and uh, you basically supplement my Stranger Things experience. All right. Well, let's dive into it. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. A form slightly larger than Dritzt, but obviously humanoid, drifted around a nearby stalactite. Dritzt kicked off a stone to propel himself at it, drawing his other scimitar as he went. He knew his peril a moment later, for his enemy's head resembled a four-tentacled octopus. Dritzt had never actually viewed such a creature before, but he knew what it was. An illithid, a mind flayer, the most evil and most feared monster in all of the Underdark. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. And today we're talking about mind flayers. That's as, right. <laughs> as you get from that quote, mind flayers, for those of you who aren't aware, we're really diving down the geek well today to get a monster that we both love and grew up with. Uh, but this is a creature that was originally created for Dungeons and Dragons, right? Yeah. It, it also has a long history that I'm just learning about in the Final Fantasy games. And I imagine okay. other, other properties as well that, 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 that were inspired by especially early Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. But so we're not just talking about this because we're into geeky stuff. Right? No, like, no, not just, that's like 50% of the reason. Yeah. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> we're, we're using the mind flare as a jumping off point to look at some really interesting science, uh, both in biology, but also a little bit in technology today. Yeah. Um, in the same way that Dritz, uh, our hero, uh, in the uh, opening narration, uh, used that uh, stalactite uh, exactly. as a springboard, right? So <laughs> that was a quote from R.A. Salvatore's Exile, which is part of the Dark Elf trilogy. It's actually book two in the Dark Elf trilogy. Yeah. Uh, you may be familiar with this. If you're not, uh, I'll give you a quick primer. These are Dungeons and Dragons based novels, uh, set in the Forgotten Realm setting based around this character, Dritz Doerden, that is, uh, pretty popular mm-hmm. with that crowd. And still, still part of the property. There, oh, yeah. board games that come out. He's, he's mentioned in the materials for the, the, the big current Underdark campaign. I'm pretty sure they're still coming out with novels with him in it too. 
Um, and these, <laughs> I have a fondness for these novels because they were like my way to wind down my brain mm-hmm. after doing too much research, either when I was in graduate school or sometimes from podcasting. So I've read, I want to say there's like 20, 25 of these books and I've probably read three quarters of them. Uh, <laughs> mostly I, I refer to them as sword porn because there's just like whole sections, like pages and pages where it's just describing like the ways in which he moves his swords. I mean, just in this one paragraph alone, like they've had to mention like the way he drew a scimitar and everything, but mind flayers are like the primary antagonist in this specific book. So I pulled that quote and then there's another one later on where I I think that this contributed to the lore surrounding them. So, you know, we'll refer back to it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we're using this, this creature, this uh, wondrous creature as a, as, as a, as an opportunity to, to discuss some, some science. And we're using science as a way to explain some of the more fantastic aspects of this fictional monster. It's kind of a relationship we come back to, uh, time and time again, uh, because as I like to say, no matter how fantastic, how crazy the imagined monster is, you can you can almost count on nature to have equaled or surpassed it in weirdness. Yeah, that's that's exactly uh, what's so wonderful about using this for an episode of the show. And I'd like to point out that this is actually connected to two other things that we do on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. The first is obviously Robert's monster science that he's been working on for years. If you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, there are, I, I dare say... A hundred, maybe, monster science posts. Like you've covered almost every monster in existence. Um, well, well, I wouldn't go that far because they're pretty <laughs> inexhaustible. But um, yeah, the monster, uh, the monster of the week posts are kind of like the monster science yeah. text version. And then it. there's the video series Monster mm-hmm. Science as well, which you can find there, or you can find. Well, all the videos are on our Facebook and, and our YouTube channel as well. Uh, but also, you and Joe are doing an episode coordinated with this that's about. Mind control. Yeah, it's going to be titled What Mind Control Feels Like, and it should be the episode that follows this. I think this episode right here is coming out on a Thursday, and then the the following one, the Mind Control episode, will come out on a Tuesday, but it'll all come together. So brace yourselves, everybody. We're we're really getting into it with minds, brains, and actual brain eating today. Yeah, because one of the things about the Mind Flayers, if you're not familiar... And uh, if you're not familiar at all with the mind flayers, uh, just bear with us. We'll get to the, the, the real science uh, as well. But they are not only these uh, squ- these octopus-headed, purple-fleshed uh, evildoers that live in the underdark, this vast subterranean realm in the Dungeons and Dragons world. They are also uh, psychic or psionically gifted creatures that are able to just dominate people left and right with their amazing psychic powers, you know, throwing mind blasts all over the dungeon, uh, just really wreaking havoc. But that is their primary power. And their finishing move is to grab a hold of you uh, with their tentacle mouths and suck your brain right out of your head. It's like a Total kill, like instant kill, I think, if you get uh, grappled by a a mind flare by the head or whatever. (laughs) You know, they actually, uh, not to skip too far ahead into their anatomy, but they're generally uh, represented as having um, just four digits on their hand. Right. So they have three knuckles. And I was thinking the other day, this would be perfect for a um, TPK 
tattoo for oh, Mind Flayer or wow. Total Party Kill. That's your is, like your thug Mind Flayer. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. I like it. For, for those of you not familiar with the game, Total Party Kill is when uh, the the creatures in the game, or more specifically, the dungeon master, kills off the entire party with a. Generally, generally, this occurs because the encounter is not mathematically difficult. calibrated. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we're going to use these as a jumping off point, And you guys are probably saying to yourselves right now, like, whoa, like this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> Just bear with us because the thing about mind flayers in particular that is really useful for stuff to blow your mind is – they were created for this game, and then it's been a good almost 40 years that people have been working on them, whether yeah. it's uh, in these novels that I mentioned earlier or for rule books or for video games or whatever. It's it's kind of like Star Wars uh, creatures. They've had like more and more tagged on to their uh, fictional biology and culture and mm-hmm. philosophy over the years to the point that it's like it's this fleshed out world, you know, yeah. and it's it's really fascinating what multiple people brought to the table with it and how that then subsequently translates because they were obviously inspired by, you know, creatures from real life oh, or, yeah. or philosophy in, in different cultures. Oh, yeah, indeed. I mean, in, in so many cases, either the, the people adding to the, uh, the, the mythos of, say, the mind flayers, they yeah. either were directly inspired by natural world organisms or they're just weird creativity managed to, uh, to parallel actual natural yeah. world weird that's the like somebody needs to do a like a history of the mind flare creation book where they yeah. like talk to all these people because in front of us here in the studio right now is volo's guide to monsters and it has a pretty comprehensive like what almost 10 page section oh yeah on mind flares more more, I dare say, than real world encyclopedias have on <laughs> some of the uh, real world animals we're going to talk about in today's episode. Yeah. Uh, but it's really impressive. And I would love to see how all these pieces came together. Yeah. And that just came out, by the way, if uh, anyone out there is interested, uh, just can't, just published. Now, in terms of well, we're not going to attempt to do what we just mentioned here. We're not going to actually, uh, you know, go piece by piece through the generation of the Mind Flayer. No. But we will just touch on its origins, which go back to uh, Gary Gygax himself, the creator of Dungeons and Dragons. Indeed, he is the guy. He's the guy who started the whole thing. And you got a nice quote from him here specifically about Mind Flayers. Yeah, he said, quote, The Mind Flayer I made up out of whole cloth using my imagination, but inspired by the cover of Brian Lumley's novel in paperback edition, The Burrowers Beneath. So I've never seen this before. What's it look like? Um, I looked at I, I looked at the various covers, and the one that I think most modern readers are used to is the one that looks kind of like an eye in the center of a nautilus. Okay. And that one looks more mind flayery. Yeah. Um, but the ori- original cover, the one that I think Gygax would have seen, just kind of looks like a silhouette of dark tentacles rising out of a hill. Okay. okay. But, uh, but still, I, I, I take the man into his word. Um, Lumley, of course, was Lovecraft influenced. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of Lovecraftian weirdness to the mind flayers. So just, just as the fictional race, has crossed over from another realm in Dungeons and Dragons. The very inception is sort of a, a cross pollination from a different dimension of literary fantasy. Yeah, I think you could probably trace their origins all the way back to uh, Lovecraft's intense fear of sea life. <laughs> so, uh, and, and just to get this out of the way too, because uh, again, I know a number of you may be primarily familiar with these uh, critters from uh, 
uh, Final Fantasy or other properties, Illithid is definitely a D&D property. Oh, yeah, that, right. right. But so you, they've got the TM on that, yeah, right? Yeah, so you can't just throw Illithids around in other games or video games or novels mm-hmm. uh, without, uh, you know, Big Dungeon getting a cut. Right. But uh, <laughs> Mind Flayers you'll see elsewhere. Yeah, uh, that, right. In fact, uh, we saw there was a paper that you found that's stunning, uh, all about like the various types of sort of cephalopod monster mollusks that show up in video games. Oh yeah, yeah. It's an article um, that was published in Geek Studies. Yeah, and I'll, I'll try to include a link to that on the landing page for this episode. But it's, yeah, just all about and, weird squid and octopus monsters from 16-bit video. And games. there was this amazing chart of all of the various ones. Uh, and it down to their little like eight bit renderings and there's a, the mind flayer, very recognizable mm-hmm. in there. So yeah, again, these are basically purple people with octopus heads. Their mouths are like lampreys. We're going to go through the anatomy pretty carefully because that's how we're going to tie it into real world science. That's right. All right. So let's dive in. Let's talk about their origins real quick, which are of course shrouded in mystery. So they're basically two origin stories in play here. Most likely, the uh, Mind Flayers hail from the Far Realm, which is an alien dimension of cosmic horror in the D&D universe. But there's also this whispered rumor that they're from the future, and perhaps even the distant, uh, highly evolved state of humanoid life in the multiverse. Though I'm I'm not sure much stock is actually put in that interpretation. I want to say that that is that's the one that's heavily Lovecraft influenced because there's and I can't believe I can't remember the name of the monster from one of Lovecraft's short stories, but that's. One of the things from his that this monster is from the future and it's come back in time to sort of right some wrong or something like that. And I think this is again not there's no sources behind this, but <laughs> but it, my, if my memory's correct from playing D and D for twenty some odd years, uh, their origin story differs depending on which setting you're playing D and D in. Right. Well, that's right. It's a it's a multiverse, and, yeah. and of course they they also instill this in you. Your game is not necessarily taking place in the same right. corner of the multiverse as the the campaign across uh, across the road. Yeah, 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 exactly. So one of the really important plot points with the Illithids is that in ages past, they carved out an enormous empire for themselves, one that spanned whole worlds in the material plane as well as other various planes. They they had slash have spaceships called nautiloids that enable uh, uh, travel across the planes, but they've lost the technology of their manufacture. Like any you know decent elder race, they've they've right. forgotten how to, to so redo. They're kind the, of like relics radius. now. Yeah. But they built their empire mostly on the back of psionically dominated slave labor. Uh, but after time, as you know, happens when you build your empire on slave labor, the slaves uh, rose up, they rebelled, and uh, their their empire fell to pieces. And so they had to go out and just sort of find little corners to survive in. And in particular, they end up taken up in the Underdark. Uh, and and here they end up. You know, having more slave races and each one they mess up by just, you know, psionically dominating them, yeah. altering them, changing them into whatever form suits the mind flayers and, uh, just, just causing lots of trauma and mischief, um, just across the world. They remind me kind of of this ant that we've covered on the show before. I'm going to have trouble remembering its Latin name off the top of my head, but you might know it. Cordyceps. Oh yes, the the, the cordyceps uh, uh, fungi that uh, end up growing in the ants. Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. Um, so these this fungi gets inside uh, these ant brains, and it it sort of controls them to take care of its fungal colony and allow it to take the ant resources. And mind flayer 
uh, I guess, sociology is mm-hmm. somewhat similar in that they they dominate these, you know, people of various D and D species, dwarves, elves, pe- human beings, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, gith. Oh yeah, the gith. I'll have to touch on the gith here. And they're, they're the slaves that sort of like work and do all the, the the labor for the mind flayers. They even one of the things that the slaves are known to do is uh, they have to scrub down the elder brain and get and massage it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and the, the elder brain is important too. That's the thing. All the all these different elements uh, we're touching on here. They might sound a bit like fluff, but we're going to come back to them yeah. and discuss some science around them. But real quick about the gith. The gith were the 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 biggest mistake. That they made. Right. Uh, these were the thralls that really rose up and not only helped bring about the fall of their empire, but regu- now the Gith regularly venture out from their astral plane headquarters to hunt down and eradicate illithid colonies wherever they can find them. And that's one of the key reasons that illithids live and, you know, the safety and secret of the Underdark or other secluded places in, in, in each separate colonies cut off uh, from all the others while, while they calculate and scheme and figure out how they're going to restore their empire right yeah so they basically like live in these like deep caves they're it's like a it's almost like an ant colony it is yeah yeah uh and and the it's all based around the the center of this elder brain i mentioned earlier which we're going to get into uh they but they yeah they kind of like occasionally just go out grab some slaves pull them back in and like that's how their society runs yeah it's going to be very helpful as we go forward just to, to think of them as you social parasites yes they right really like they have two options they either uh capture somebody and eat their brain Mm -hmm. or capture them and dominate their mind and make them into a slave right so either way an encounter with a mind flayer is going to end up bad all right so let's launch into their biology again bipedal humanoid bodies four tentacles four claw digits per hand diet consists mostly of cyanic energy with some uh, additional sustenance uh, from the gobble brains themselves uh, now, technically speaking, they're troglophiles. They're cave-dwelling creatures that complete their life cycles in a cave, but they can also survive above ground. Now, help me out with this. Troglophiles is a real term. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a real <laughs> term. This is not a Dungeons and Dragons term. Yeah. This would be the 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 natural world classification for a creature like this. Right. Though, of course, classifications are difficult when you're considering even fictional intelligent creatures. You know, one that is choosing to live underground in a subterranean environment for their own purposes. And now their reproductive system is utterly bizarre. And yet uh, there are real world examples that are almost as bizarre. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are real world examples. When you start looking at complex life cycles, yeah. you look at some of the the parasite life cycles out there and various insect life cycles that are not only just like a, a bizarre circle of parasitic behavior, but also when you see branches in the tree, and this is key to understanding the uh, the mind flayers, when you see various morphs that can emerge. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, walk us through this. All right, so uh, you have an egg. That's where it starts, an illithid egg. Um, so a mind, an adult mind flayer, what came first? <laughs> the mind flayer or the egg? No, um, uh, an adult mind flayer lays an egg? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so they lay an egg. That egg hatches into an illithid tadpole. Right. So a little squirming, a, you know, a tadpole, a little larval illithid. Now, from that point, there are a few different things that can happen. Ideally, there uh, there's a process called seramorphosis, and this is where adult mind flayers would come and pick up the little tadpole, 
and uh, implant it in the cranium of a captive humanoid, mm-hmm. like a captive kind of like psychically washed humanoid. And they usually put it through the ear, but there's a drawing in Volo's Guide of Monsters of like, it's very based on Wrath of Khan, yeah. <laughs> of like the the tadpole like crawling its way up the face toward the eye socket of a victim. Yeah. So, yeah, that exact uh, scenario. So one way or another, they get that uh, that puppy into the brain and then it eats the brain replaces the brain and then that host body becomes the new mind flayer body go yeah. you know i guess it, it turns purple slimy loses a digit on each hand gets pretty skinny yeah and then you've got you got yourself an adult illithid that carries on adult illithid business yeah and eventually can go on to lay eggs of its own right now there are two other possible ways that this can go with the uh, illithid tadpole so sometimes the uh, illithid becomes a eulotharid and this is uh this is essentially a super mind flayer that is going to eventually leave the colony with some other mind flayers, found a new colony okay. and become its elder brain. Okay. So it doesn't have human humanoid form. It's just like the super powered tadpole. Right. It's a super powered tadpole, still has to be implanted into a humanoid, but gotcha. it's destined to be this um uh, this this cedar of a new colony. And it will eventually grow into a giant brain. Right, once it establishes itself elsewhere. And uh, then the other way that things can go is the illithid tadpole can become a neolithid. And this is when there nobody's taking care of the tadpoles. Nobody, no mind flayers are coming around to look after them and make sure they're stuffed into the right skull. In this case, they all freak out and start eating each other. And whichever one is left grows into a giant, powerful beast intelligence monster. Huh. Okay. I have never encountered one of these before. This it, is good. It's like a level 13. Wow. Okay. But... It, 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 but what's going on with both of these cases, and, and this is where there's a there's a real world parallel that we'll we'll break down a little a little more in a bit, is that you essentially have two morphs springing off from the tadpole. One is caused by negative environmental constraints, and that leads to the neolithid, right. and the other is positive environmental constraints, which leads to the uh, ulithide. So I'm assuming this is dependent on like. How many humanoids are available for them to eat brains of or make slaves into or, or, or whatnot? Right? Yeah. What, how big the cave system is that they're living within, et cetera. Yeah. yeah it's, it has to do with population density in our real world examples that we'll get to. So yeah. you can think of it in those terms. Like, is the, is the colony successful enough to send off anything to found a new colony? Hmm. Or is it even successful enough for the, 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 the tadpoles to continue to thrive? Or should they just all eat each other out of, uh, a, you know, purely economic cannibalism which is a thing that does happen in, oh yeah in, in, in multiple species yeah yeah well, was, right right in real species but also in this fictional yeah. one we're talking about right it, it, just in our yeah. real world yeah uh, cannibalism is always the the most economic path yeah to avoid wasting the energy that goes into flesh so we've mentioned this elder brain multiple times and basically i just said it's a giant brain but let's let's get a little bit more <laughs> defined here on this. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's just a giant brain in a brine pool that is in charge of the mind flare colony. See, but, in the in the um, Dritz books, it's in cerebral fluid, and uh, I always wondered where did they get all that cerebral fluid from? Like, maybe they hmm. eat the brains and then they like keep they drain the cerebral fluid out to put in their little elder brain pool that they've got <laughs> no they just have amazon weekly deliveries on sailing solution. oh That's okay how they do it. yeah well the two-day shipping on Prime. yeah yeah you got to do it <laughs> even to the underdark exactly 
Yeah. So uh, according to Volos, what's going on here with the elder brain is so is this to survive and to make the necessary meta calculations in order you know, to 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 actually survive and to eventually reclaim their empire. Uh, they've either evolved or developed the elder brains. And these are giant, immobile th- thought organs that float in tanks of brine, serving as the mind flayers colonies, library of knowledge, a history of past lives and a nexus of metacognition for the individuals in the colony. Okay. And each individual then is going to employ non-alithid thralls as well. Now, this reminds me of in the Marvel Universe, they have a similar thing, the the Cree alien species, which I haven't seen a lot of the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I think they show up in there. Mm-hmm. They're ruled by a thing that's very similar to this that's called the Supreme Intelligence. It's kind of the same thing. It's just like a big blob in like a, a giant canister of cerebral fluid, and it's got some brain tentacles and like mm-hmm. eyes and a mouth. Yeah, the, these don't have eyes in the mouth. They're just brains, no, just big brains. Yeah, and, and they do all sorts of, of uh, you know, psionically powerful tactics against anybody that threatens them. But we'll come back to the elder brains in a bit because there are actual parallels to discuss with humans. All right, so that is the the, the crash course in the fictional illithids. Now, from here on in the episode, we're going to largely focus on what the natural world, what real life biology can tell us about what's going on with the elithids and how we can use the elithid example as a way to explore these examples. Yeah, so the way that I approached this was sort of like, let's Frankenstein from the real world a a mind flayer out of what we know of how they're described, right? Right. So the, their biology, anatomy, all that stuff, like what's in the real world that we can bring to our understanding of this? And the first place that I went to was their mouths because they are described as even though they've got these tentacles, Mm -hmm. they're described as their specific mouths as being like lamprey mouths. Lampreys, if you're unfamiliar, are jawless fish. Uh, They've got these thorny suction cup like mouths and they are parasites, much like the mind flayers and a lot of the creatures we're going to talk about today. They use their mouths to attach to an animal's body and then they cut with these teeth through surface tissue until they reach the blood and bodily fluids of it. Uh, they're, they're known to live in both coastal and fresh water. They're kind of, they look like eels, kind mm-hmm. of, but they're not. They're fish. Uh, there's three types of them. There's flesh eaters, blood drinkers, and just a type that lives for three to seven years in a larval stage. And then they only live for six months as adults, but they don't huh. really feed. They just reproduce with other lampreys and then they die. So, an equally weird example from the real world. Now, there is an excellent article on Wired uh, from 2014 called Absurd Creature of the Week, the Lamprey, that just really dove deep into the lamprey's biology. So I turned to that for a real deep description of this mouth. What's going on with this mouth? Now, uh, flesh eater lampreys and blood drinker lampreys have different types of mouths. So let's go with the flesh eater for today since we know that the mind flare is definitely using it to eat brains. So they have a structure that's like a tongue. These are lampreys and it's called a piston. It has this convex structure to it that moves both side to side and up and down, basically gouging flesh out of its victim with a strong middle tooth attached to it. And this middle tooth is shaped like a U in the flesh-eater lampreys and, like, a W in the blood-drinker lampreys. And for different reasons, Mm -hmm. one's better at, like, pulling flesh into the mouth. The other is better at getting blood flowing. Gotcha. Um, And 
they're very much like uh, other animals that we've talked about when we've covered vampires on the show before. They have glands in their throat that secrete an anticoagulant, and that helps keep the blood flowing, help get stuff down their throat. Uh, in the flesh eaters, the anticoagulant glands are much smaller, but they still exist. So presumably a mind flayer would have some kind of anticoagulant gland as well. Now, lampreys have two rings of structures inside the mouth that helps them adhere to their victims through suction. One ring is the oral fimbriae, and it basically looks like little leaves uh, that are made of flaps of tissue. And these adhere closely to the skin of the victim, and they form this tight seal, like – uh, I mean, I've never been bitten by a lamprey, but I imagine, like, for, from what I've heard, it's, they're next to impossible to get off of you. Like, oh. part of the country that I lived in for a while in New Hampshire uh, was right next to what was called the Lamprey River. And so, obviously, there are a lot of freshwater <laughs> lampreys in there. Uh, I, I never encountered them. But, you know, my understanding is, like, you know, you have to basically kill it to get it off and then have it, I think, surgically removed. Um, so it's, it's clamped on there tight. There's a second ring in the mouth that is made of conical structures known as papillae. And these help the lamprey actually sense where best to attach themselves. So the blood drinking lampreys, they're so sensitive with this region of their mouth that they can actually use it to find underlying blood vessels oh, in their wow. victims. So this is like, think of it as like, uh, like radar almost, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a super sensitive organ built into their mouth so they can find the, the best possible place to clamp down and start chewing and sucking blood or, and or flesh out of you. Now they don't often go after humans. Don't be listening to this and like freak out and say, <laughs> Oh boy, like that, you know, that's pretty rare. I think it, it has happened obviously, but, uh, fun fact that Joe actually told me about, I was talking to him about this episode uh-huh. before we came to the studio and he said, well, did you know this is classic Joe? He's got just like this ample amount of weird knowledge. He goes, did you know Henry the first died from eating a pie full of lampreys? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Like a lamprey pie? Yeah. And he was right. Apparently King Henry the first died from food poisoning when he ate what was referred to as a surfeit of lampreys in a pie (laughs) his physician specifically told him not to he was like this is this is a bad idea (laughs) and he he, instead i think he was like 68 69 he was Mm -hmm. you know for the time quite elderly but he was like nope i'm eating this pie full of lampreys (laughs) i can't imagine what that tastes like it just made me immediately nauseous when Joe told me about it. But by all accounts, there's there's multiple pieces of evidence that this guy ate a lamprey pie. Well, we'll have to hear from people who have a culinary experience with lampreys. Yeah, maybe they taste great. I don't know. I can't imagine that a creature that solely subsists on just like hanging onto the body of its victim and draining it of blood has got like a lot of like, you know, <laughs> good fatty flesh on it for eating. But I'm also a vegetarian. <laughs> now, for the mind flayers part, of course, it's it's not so much about blood or meat. It's about getting that brain. Oh, yeah. So so I guess the idea here would be if we look to the lamprey, it would be to eat either use some sort of specialized tongue after attachment to either like cut its way through an eye socket or yeah. some other natural uh a fleshy gateway to the brain. The way I've or always, just like straight through the skull. Yeah, the way I've always seen it drawn is from behind. Like mm-hmm. the the uh, <laughs> mind flayer tentacles wrap around your face from behind. The mouth attaches to the back of your skull, and then presumably this piston thing is in their mouth and just bores through your skull, and subsequently they just 
chunk the your brain up and suck it up through their mouth. Hmm. Yeah, leaving you with a head without a brain. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will explore more horrifying wonders uh, related to the illithid uh, body as well as natural world organisms. Okay, so we're back. Robert, you had previously mentioned the possibilities of tadpoles in real life and in mind flayer life being cannibals. Yes. So let's talk about this. All right. So once more again, according to, to Volo's Guide to Monsters and Elithid lays eggs and protected pools and larval tadpole hatcheries. All right. It's the, the tadpoles hatch, uh, and then they get turned into adult mind flayers. Now, Tadpoles in abandoned pools, these are pools that, you know, the, the mind flayers that looked after were all slain by high-level adventurers or, or, or gith coming in from, uh, from the outside. Right. So there's nobody to take care of them. So the, what they do is they end up eating each other until all you have left is just one mutated survivor known as a neolithid. And this just grows into a monstrous psychic worm that's a danger to elithids and non-elithids alike. Large, powerful, animal-minded monster uh, with uh, with some psionic ability. Okay, so there are some real-world examples of this, right? Yeah, yeah. For, for the real-world world, uh, parallel here would be tiger salamander cannibal morphs. Okay. So the, the life cycle of the tiger salamander uh, features an interesting developmental fork. An egg can develop into a normal larval tadpole or into this cannibal morph. See, now under normal circumstances, tiger salamander eggs develop into normal tadpoles and then into normal adult tiger salamanders. But if the population is too large for the available environment, so like they're in a small pool or something, Mm -hmm. uh, then consistent tactile interactions with other tadpoles cause some of the eggs to develop into tadpoles with larger heads, bigger mouths, and more well Developed teeth. I'm definitely picturing like a baby xenomorph. Yeah. So yeah, it's ba- basically the scenario is not to personify, uh, <laughs> you know, non-human, non-intelligent uh, um, uh, relationships here, but it's almost like there's a there's somebody in charge that says, "All right, we got too many, we got too many uh, salamanders in this pool. Let's just make one that's really good at eating all the other, all the other salamanders." <laughs> uh, it, so it, basically, they have a built-in population control system, larva-on-larva larva cannibalism. If the brood pool is overcrowded and the resources are too scarce, then some tadpoles physically transform in order to better gobble up the others. That is absolutely terrifying. Let's back up for a second here. <laughs> let's imagine – let's apply this to human beings. Imagine there's a nursery and it's mm-hmm. you know at the hospital and it's got all the babies in their little beds, right? Yeah. And – one baby grows a little bit larger, its head gets bigger, it gets this huge mouth, and it grows well-developed teeth. And then it proceeds to crawl around the nursery and eat some of the other babies. Yeah. That's basically what we're talking That's about That's the here. basic scenario here, yeah. Now, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and, and after this culling is done, the, the cannibal morph salamander, it keeps its large head and bigger mouth, but then goes through, uh, its diet normalizes, and it goes through a normal life cycle. I'm trying to imagine like the um, animal documentary that's narrated by like Morgan Freeman or Sigourney Weaver or something. <laughs> and they're like, and here we have the tiger salamander eating all of its fellow tadpole babies. And it's uh, just like, well, that, that's exactly the kind of thing Attenborough would hit us with. Yeah. Attenborough uh, would yeah. love it. That's yeah. true. 
and I would have to, I would have to immediately skip the track for my son as we watch uh, nature shows. Um, now let's turn to the Neolithid. So yeah, the Neolithid, you can look at it and say, this is essentially a cannibal morph. This right. is one tadpole eating all the other tadpoles and then growing into this giant thing. So if we're to use nature as our guide here, we can only assume that the Neolithid morph once served an evolutionary purpose, allowing a tadpole pool to survive in times of chaos or abandonment, absorbing the nutrients of its fellow tadpoles with just pure economic ruthlessness, just like the cannibal morphs of tiger salamanders. However, with the mind flayers, you can definitely say that the Neolithid is something of uh, a vestigial uh, uh, thing, right? Because there's, there's no information in any of the books I looked at that, that that let us know that the, the Neolithid continues the Illithid race in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's not going to develop into, as far as I can tell, it's not going to develop into an adult mind flare. So this is perhaps uh, in a, a you know a fitting accident for a species that has manipulated other species and itself for so long. Under normal condition, larger tadpoles would would be killed, and they certainly would not be permitted to mature into a neolithid. Right? Yeah, I would imagine like in the mind flayer society, this isn't always a good thing, right? Yeah, it kind of deviates from your normal routine. It would be like it. It would be exactly like if humans could do this, right? You yeah. would. You would know. Never. Never. Always space your babies out. Don't let. <laughs> don't put them too close, or you're going to end up with a cannibal morph baby. Yeah. And then what are we going to do about that? You know. Well, so I, this isn't directly related to the cannibalism thing, but I found an interesting article about tadpoles that I just wanted to throw in here as well to try to understand the neolithids. So according to research that was published in 2013, apparently tadpoles can see if you attach eyeballs to their tails. What? Now, this is utterly bizarre. Why? What, what I'm wondering is like, you know, what the working conditions are like in this laboratory. <laughs> but the, basically, it was compelling to scientists to study because they wanted to learn how much a tadpole brain could interpret sensory data. So they took the African claw frog Xenopus lavis. I believe that's the Latin pronunciation. They took their tadpoles and they grafted eyeballs onto their torsos and tails and then they removed their original eyes. Hmm. So that's the part to me. I'm like, what mad science is this that they're just like plucking eyes out of these creatures and then pasting eyes onto other parts of their body? Yeah. Who's the awful underdark monster here? Yeah, exactly. This is very, this is the kind of thing mind flayers do. Yeah. Um, then they, they gave a, tadpole vision test and the way that they did this was they uh, illuminated half the area that the tadpoles were in with red light and half with blue light and in the red light the tadpoles would get electrocuted they'd get zapped with electricity so again more torture right Mm -hmm. we've already yanked your eyeballs out pasted them onto your tail now we're going to zap you but apparently some of these tadpoles uh, would go over to the blue light area because they knew that it was safe. So the scientists determined some of them could actually see with their eyeball tails uh, because they stayed in these safe blue areas. So the researchers basically argued this is evidence that the brain in general uh, is remarkably plastic in its configuration for different body arrangements, like especially at tadpole stage when it's so um, – you know, you're at the beginning of the life cycle. Mm-hmm. It can adapt quickly enough to like somehow rewire so it can attach to these eyeballs that are just not supposed to be there. Right. Um, and this is what allows 
mutations in all kinds of body plans, not just in frogs and tadpoles, to still work with the uh, existing anatomy. So the basic idea here is like if there's some kind of a mutation in a single organism, it can adapt quickly or its brain can adapt quickly because like it's designed to be so, I don't know, flexible, literally. Well, that's that's wonderful because this not only gives us a little more information about tadpoles and how they work, but again, it shows uh, it, it supports the the theory that mind flayers are essentially us. Yeah, very much so. And and I think uh, right, like can you imagine there. Here's your D and D campaign, right? You have, okay. You have to. You're some adventurers. You have to sneak into a mind flayer cave, take some of their tadpoles, and then pull their eyes off and reattach them to their tails and perform this experiment. <laughs> In uh, in D&D time. So we'll see what kind of odd uh, results that would have. Now, we're talking about brain-eating monsters here. So so one of the most obvious areas to, to, to explore here would be what animals eat brains. And it's yeah. a trickier scenario than we often think because there are plenty of animals that eat brains. Humans eat brains. Totally, yeah. I mean, uh, oh, I could, this is going to have forever scarred me. But growing up, did you ever see Faces of Death? No, I mean, I'm very familiar with them by reputation. Yeah, they were... you're lucky that you didn't. <laughs> but there was uh, one of the, like, bootlegged VHS copies that I saw back when I was, uh, God, must have been like 14 or 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, they the, they did the thing where they put the monkey in the middle of a table. The table has, like, the circular entry. And you hit the monkey on the head, open up its skull, and people eat the brains. It's this a delicacy. Would, this would countries. be the, the very thing that was uh... – referenced in that awful scene in the second Indiana Jones movie. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And you, if you wonder why I'm a vegetarian, that was probably the beginnings of it right there. Yeah. God, what what an odd... I, I, I want to go back and watch that movie sometimes, but... Don't. There's so much weird xenophobic material. Yeah, it. yeah. It's... Ugh. Uh, yeah, I, I feel sorry if our listeners are out there and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But yeah, so there are a lot of examples, plenty of animals, birds, humans uh, that eat brains, right? But to understand the mind flare effect on uh, the humanoids that they're eating the brains of, I turn to a couple specific creatures that I think will help us out here. Yeah, because one of the things about the mind flare is that you know, in in a in a very f- fantasy way, it eats psychic energy, and right. of course, there are no real parallels to that in the in, in the real world. Otherwise, they're definitely eating the brain and nothing else. So the 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 way to describe this in biology would be to say that they're obligate, I guess, neurovores. Yeah, and yeah. it's difficult to find anything like that in biology. Yeah, but you you have a couple Thank of God. possibilities here. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Uh, all of them much smaller than the mind flayer. Uh, the first is, and again, help me with my Latin here. I think it's Negleria fowleri. This is referred to in English as the brain eating amoeba. Ooh. Uh, and this amoeba is the primary cause of the infectious disease amoebic meningoencephalitis, which is also referred to as just PAM, P-A-M. The amoeba can exist in different kinds of environments, sometimes in soil, sometimes in freshwater, and that's where it becomes trouble for us as human beings. Or it can exist in the human central nervous system. Now, these infections are really rare. What we're about to tell you, like, don't get super freaked out. It's super, it's incredibly rare. But when they happen, 95 to 99% of the time, it's fatal. Like, if you get one of these amoeba in you, 
you're pretty much done for. This is this is rolling a one on your uh, your oh, skill yeah. check. Yeah, the CDC actually estimates that there were 138 cases of Pam reported in the United States between 1962 and 2015. Okay, so that gives you an idea of how rare it is. Of those, only three of the patients survived. Uh, so how do you get it? You're all probably immediately going, Oh, what? I, I don't want that. How, <laughs> how, how do I stay away from that? Well, usually it's from engaging in recreational water activities like swimming or diving. So, you know, you'd basically have to stay away from water fun if you, if you, if you want to totally avoid this thing. The amoeba enters, uh, the human body through your nose and it attaches itself to the epithelial cells that line the inside of the nasal cavity. Then it migrates to the nerves that are situated in the nasal area. Eventually, this reaches the central nervous system of your spinal cord and brain, and it induces your body's immune system to activate macrophages and neutrophils to combat infection. Doesn't feel good, and here's why. The amoeba itself, this is very mind flayery. It has food cups on its surface that allow it to capture its own food resources. And this is everything from bacteria and fungi to human tissue if it's gotten up your nose. In addition, it produces cell-destructive molecules that destroy the membrane structure of nerve cells. So the combination of these two things make it really effective at inducing severe nerve damage. It eventually will destroy your entire central nervous system. This makes them a pretty serious public health hazard um, because they can be easily acquired. You know, you're just swimming along, you get one up your nose and boom. And then they're associated with this really high mortality rate. Now, the symptoms don't show up until about two to eight days after infection. And they include the following. And this is I think we can use these as probably an idea of what symptoms would be like of uh, be either being under the thrall of mind flayers or during the process of your brain being consumed. As, okay. okay. So as they're sucking that brain, yeah. out, just beginning to suck it out, I guess. So sudden headache. That's a, that's an obvious one, mm-hmm. right? High fever, neck pain, nausea, vomiting, rhinitis, light sensitivity, and eventually seizures and a coma. So, all right, mind flayer is probably doing this much quicker than the brain-eating amoeba is, right? But that's a basic idea. You know, unless they have different culinary styles, you know? Yeah, maybe they, there's some of them. Maybe they like to eat slow. Yeah, I mean, I I was read to geek out a little bit, I was reading that uh, supposedly some mind flayers experiment by, say, uh, subjecting their uh, – their their victims to you know musical thoughts or whatever like they'll 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 want a certain mind state before they oh, eat it because it adjusts it the flavor better. yeah interesting okay so they go to like they go to like a special school yeah. to like learn what specific thoughts to beam into the brain before they eat it yeah do you want your your brain meal to be more like of a, a, a veal do right. you want it to be a a sushi you know depends huh well. Again, I want to remind everybody, the brain-eating amoeba is pretty rare. It's so rare that no clinical trials for developing treatments even exist as of 2016. Usually, if it's found, it's treated with something called amphotericin B, which is an antifungal drug, as well as a variety of other antifungal drugs. And I've got some examples for you. In fact, these are the three survivors in the U.S. Um, one of the – now, there's been seven survivors in the whole world – Three in the U.S. 
One of them was a nine-year-old girl in California who was infected in 1978, and she caught it by swimming in Deep Creek Hot Springs in San Bernardino National Forest. She was treated with exactly what I just described. They gave her amphotericin B, some other antifungal drugs intravenously, and she beat it and lived through the experience. Now, two other children were reported survivors of this just in 2013, so just three years ago, and they were 12 and 8 years old. And the 12-year-old first contracted it at a water park that was near huh. Little Rock, Arkansas. So don't think to yourself like, oh, this is only if I swim in like natural water. Right. Apparently is, they huh. got it at this water park as well. Uh, in addition to the antifungal treatments that they usually give, this girl was so bad off that they had to subject her to induced hypothermia to reduce her brain swelling. So this is a pretty nasty disease. Um, but also, you know, let's keep it in mind when we're thinking about Boy, this mind flare, it's got its lamprey mouth attached and its piston drilling through my head. What's that going to feel like? So this would be an example of a creature that certainly doesn't depend on human brains at all. Exactly. But this is it. But it also gives us an example of what brain eating in the real world consists of. Yep. We have a couple other examples here, too. Uh, the next one is neurocysticerosis, which is a type of tapeworm that usually lives in pigs. This is very stuff to blow your mind. You must have covered these the, the pork tapeworm. Yeah. Right? Uh, pork tapeworm produce larvae that can latch onto cranium, uh, whether it's a pig's cranium or human cranium, and they show up as large white cysts. They usually disperse through a pig's bloodstream. So when you're eating uh, undercooked pork, you could be eating their larvae. Uh, so when they enter a human, usually from eating undercooked pork, they still flow through our bloodstream and they get stuck inside the fluid-filled cavities in our brains. These can lead to a coma, loss of motor functions, violent seizures, or blindness. And the reason why? They're eating holes into your brain. Now, my understanding of this scenario is that essentially you have a parasite that is lost yeah. in an unfamiliar host. Exactly, yeah. And it's just doing what it thinks it's supposed to mm-hmm. do, and it results in this. Yeah. Now, it's unlike the amoeba, this is more common than you might think. It's estimated that uh, 2,000 people have them in the U.S. and 29 million in Latin America. Now, these are just pork tapeworms going about their regular business, not not necessarily getting lost and winding up in the brain, though. Uh, yeah, I believe that's okay. true. Yeah, which can right. It can subsequently lead to that. The other one that's related to this similar effect, very different uh, being is prion disease. And we've, we've talked about this occasionally on the show. Um, prions, there are a, a variety of fatal neurological illnesses that are associated with them. They are abnormal proteins and you can both inherit them or have them transmitted into your body through infected animal tissue. They result in symptoms of dementia or ataxia, which is impaired motor control, and they eventually lead to death, and it can take anywhere from weeks to months. Um, you might have heard of this as Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Uh, there's also new variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, Kuru, Gerstmann-Strasser-Scheinker syndrome, and fatal familial insomnia. So all of these are caused by prion proteins in the brain. Yeah, Kuru in particular is the one that is um, associated with traditional acts of funeral cannibalism, uh, 
in in, uh, in certain parts of the world. Oh, right. Yeah. And le- yeah, exactly. In what uh, Papua New Guinea, I believe. It leads yeah. to disease. Yeah. So all of us are probably most familiar f- with these uh, from the animal form that we referred to as mad cow disease. It's caused by a similar thing with prions. Now, we've known about this in sheep and goats for hundreds of years. It's referred to as scrappy in uh, uh, sheeps and goats. But we didn't know that it was actually transmittable until the 1930s. So basically what happens here is these diseases are caused by proteins that are misshapen. Um, that's why we refer to them as prions. They clump together and proliferate by inducing shape changes in our normal proteins. And this causes sponge-like lesions in the brain that disrupt brain function. So there's your three examples. You got the prions, the pork tapeworm, and the brain-eating amoeba. Basically, you know, very different kinds of creatures that mm-hmm. can get into your nervous system and wreak havoc. But good examples of probably what's going on with mind flare consumption. All right, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back, uh, we're going to compare the elithids to uh, a certain uh, tongue-eating parasite. So we talked about this earlier, but the, the, the creation of the mind flayer in its, I guess, lore mm-hmm. throughout the last 40-some-odd years is so amazing that they've actually come up with a detailed process with its own title called seromorphosis, which is basically the the idea of how it reproduces parasitically, right? Right. Yeah, it's that uh, example we talked about earlier. The, the little tadpole is shoved up into the cranium, and then it eats the host's brain, and then it attaches there to the brain stem, swells up, grows into the new brain for this body, yeah. and then transforms the body. Now, here's a, here's a nerdy little bit that I remember about illithids. Sometimes uh, when they do this, they take on, like, mental tics from the host that they grow within. Ah. Uh, and this is considered, like social flaw it's like a it's a real like bad sign of manners in mind player <laughs> society so they try to hide it from the rest of their species so like let's say like um all right we'll use joe as an example let's say joe uh has like a tick where he picks at his fingernails okay and then uh they insert a mind flayer tadpole into joe it eats his brain it turns joe into a mind flayer regrows as his brain but it may still have that tick where it picks at its fingernails but it has to hide it constantly from other mind flayers, huh. or else they'll they'll be like, "Oh, there's something off with you. You're not mind flayery enough. You didn't discard uh, the human shell that you're ah, using." Ah, so it's sort of like you're weak because you're in a sense you're letting your your clothing control who you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so you're probably wondering, well, this sounds just monstrous and awful and otherworldly. What's the, what possible parallel is there? Well, there's a wonderful one. And in the form of Simothia exigua. Oh, yeah. This is a stuff to blow your mind classic. We talked about mm-hmm. this one on the uh, strain episode. Yeah, this is the tongue-eating isopod. You might be familiar with these from a movie that came out a couple years ago. It's a found footage horror movie called The Bay. Oh, and yeah. I think the premise... I watched it a while ago, but the premise was something like there was some kind of pollutant in the waters mm-hmm. around this coastal town. It caused the the isopods to mutate. 
Uh, and so they started infecting human beings instead of fish. Yeah. Now, luckily, luckily, they don't actually affect humans. Right. But there hasn't been a lot of new research published on these creatures. Uh, it's, it's, they're, they're quite rare. They're possibly popping up more these days due to overfishing. But essentially what you have here, this is the scenario as we understand it. This little crustacean sneaks in through the gills of a fish. It sets up shop on the host taste buds. And then there's, uh, there's only so much room in a fish's, in a fish mouth. So you can imagine what the, the louse's first meal is. It has a tasty helping of tongue juice. It starts sucking on that tongue juice. And once the louse drains the tongue of enough blood, uh, it attaches itself to the atrophied stump of the tongue and essentially becomes the, the, the new tongue for the fish. Mm-hmm. And every time the host opens his mouth for a meal, the louse, uh, uh, you know, helps itself to a little food. On the way down. Yeah, you can easily uh, find a Google image search of what these things look like. There's plenty of pictures of people prying fish mouths open, and you can see the little isopod yeah, inside. Peeking out. Yeah, every time I show my wife it, she just goes, like, she does the voice of the isopod saying, like, hello. Like, it's just peeking <laughs> out from inside this fish mouth. Fun fact, not these specific isopods that uh, that it regrow as tongues, but other isopods can grow to be over 2.5 feet long. And uh, these aren't the tongue replacers, as I said. These are the kind that scavenge the carcasses of whales, which we've talked about before oh, on yeah. the show as well. Yeah. So these are really – I mean, I don't – I don't know how to describe isopods verbally on the show, but they're real creepy looking critters and just imagine them crawling along the corpse of a whale just slowly chewing their way through it. Yeah, to drag in another fictional comparison, they remind me a lot of the Gartham from the Dark Crystal, the big beetle creature. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Like. That's good. Yeah, that's a good example. So with Samothia exigua, you have a creature here that that mainly, you know, sucks on tongue juice, attaches itself to the stump, while the elithid tadpole goes far beyond that. The the elithid tadpole is replacing the central organ of the nervous system. Uh, and it's it's quite appropriate to think of this as an act that just kills the host, but it, it really serves as a sort of, of, of parasitism. Right. The body continues to live, albeit in a different form, and many natural world parasites inflict behavioral and physical changes on their hosts. It also gives us a rough evolutionary idea of where the elithids came from or would have come from in a natural system, right? Brain-replacing parasites that eventually transcend into something greater. Yeah. So, I mean, if you really think about it, like they have to, even though like mind flayers best operate in the dark and hide and attack, mm-hmm. they have to come into contact with other humanoid species because otherwise they're just going to only exist as tadpole form. Right. They have to, they have to use humans for bodies. They have to use humans for food. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Because also, yeah, you can think of it this way. So the, the parasitic Form that goes inside the uh, the host is physically eating the brain from the out from the inside out. Right. But then as adults, they have to crack open skulls and get brains, uh, you know, in a different way. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. I wonder what happens if a mind flayer eats a prion infected brain. That would be that would be an interesting plot point. Mm. Infected brains mm-hmm. and how maybe they can detect them and know not to uh, yeah, eat them. Maybe that's it. That's like the oh, it's like it's like an Alien Three mm-hmm. when they, the aliens don't attack Sigourney Weaver because spoilers, she's got one of them in her. Ah. But like the mind flayers will like kill everybody except for one person, and it's because they can sense that they've got you know either prion related disease or like a 
pork tapeworm or something. Well, this would be a wonderful plot for anybody out there who's putting together a campaign. Imagine a scenario <laughs> in which the big threat that the mind flayers are facing, or perhaps the uh, the methodology that's being employed by their enemies is a prion that's being induced uh, to the populations that the, the mind flayers depend on for food. Mad mind flayer disease. Yeah. All right, but we've got some more biological parallels, specifically with locusts, right? Yes. So remember the Olothard that we mentioned earlier? Yeah. This is uh, the, the super mind flare. So again, the scenario here is you have tadpoles growing into adult mind flares. Everything's going like normal. But then there's an exceptional mind flare adult who starts uh, rivaling the elder brain. Okay. You know, they dis- they're disagreeing on everything. And finally, the elder brain says, all right. Go do your own thing. Take your followers. Get out of here. Start your own colony. And that's what happens. Seeds a new colony. Okay. And uh, again, you can think of this as a morph, a version of the species that's going to go out and, uh, and, and found a new colony. Okay. And the best example that, that I came across to, to discuss this is that of the desert locust. So desert locust feature both a gregarious and a solitary morph. A gregarious morph arises as a response to population density. It's more adept at flying, so it can it can get the heck out of that immediate area, go off, and help found a new population of desert locusts. Okay. So I think that's what we have we have here with the elithids. You have a model that closely resembles morphs that develop due to population density in order to spread out and establish new communities. So in this case, it's it's the idea there's an, there's enough of them around that it means that the uh, the population is healthy. Yeah, the resources are abundant enough, and it, the colony can actually uh, you know depart, uh, splinter, and form new populations of the species. Now, what's inherent about that? especially for these mind flayers, is that they're hermaphrodites. So they don't need mates in order right. to create more mind flayers. So I was thinking about this. I was like, all right, hermaphroditic reproduction is is definitely a real thing. But let's mm-hmm. look to another example to try to figure out what how that would work with mind flayers. And the one I turned to was C. elegans, which is a, a type of nematode uh, roundworm or threadworm. Uh, and it lives in the soil, usually sometimes rotting vegetation, and it basically feeds on bacteria. And they're, they're very primitive, but we human beings study them a lot. And why? Because they share essential characteristics with human biology. So, you know, they're great for studying the effects of certain things on without doing it to humans or, I don't know, ferrets, which are another sort of, I guess, if you're thinking about it in terms of evolved life forms higher up the chain that has human characteristics. Except some of C. elegans are self-fertilizing hermaphrodites, just like the mind flayers are. Uh, and the way that they do this is they cleave embryonically. So hmm. I, I would assume this is something that happens in the mind flayer. It proceeds through morphogenesis and then they grow into an adult. Now we've been told by Volo's Guide of Monsters that mind flayers lay an egg, but this is all right. Not trying to be gross here, but I'm trying to figure this out, right? You go through seromorphosis, uh-huh. changes your body, turns your head into an octopus. Presumably, it creates some kind of orifice that you can lay an egg through. Yeah, I would guess so. Or it's utilizing an existing orifice in some way, shape, or form. Okay. Um, but I'm wondering if maybe what's happening is it's because it's creating its own eggs, it's it's cleaving embryonically inside of itself, 
laying that as an egg, and then that egg hatches, proceeds through morphogenesis, and then goes through the the seromorphosis hmm. procedure that we've already described, right? Now, C. elegans also has only male counterparts. So there's hermaphrodites and there's males, but there aren't females. It's kind of fascinating. Most of their volume, when you look at their anatomy, is taken up by their reproductive system. So you'd have to imagine maybe mind flayers would be the same way. Like other than the big head, everything from the neck down is reproductive system. Yeah, I mean, they probably don't need much in the way of a traditional digestive system because they're right. only getting a limited amount of sustenance out of that brain. Yeah. Um, and then, and then who knows how they defecate. Maybe they just, they're always covered in slime. So maybe they just, maybe they ex- just secrete, secrete it through, through their pores. Well, the, um, the C. elegans of their 959 cells, 300 of them are neurons. This sounds about right for a larval mind flare, especially yeah. if it's, you know, primarily using its thoughts, its brain, its thinking capacity. C. elegans also have neural structures. These are just in nematodes, mind you, that include sense organs for taste, smell, temperature, and touch. They don't have eyes, but they do respond to light. Hopefully nobody starts sewing eyes onto these guys anytime soon. But they, they're responsive to light as well. Uh, and they move by flexing and relaxing their dorsal ventral waves along their body to propel themselves along. And this was how I was imagining the mind flare larvae must have to have some kind of locomotion, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's moving through cerebral fluid that it's swimming around in or it's crawling up into somebody's skull. So it probably does a similar thing, right? By flexing and relaxing until it burrows up in there and eats the brain. So I think C. elegans as a nematode is a pretty good start. There's lots of hermaphroditic creatures out there that we could look to, but this seems plausible for how uh, the mind flayer, I guess, the reproductive part inside the actual adult mind flayer's body is working. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting spin on it and certainly fleshes out something that, at least in the guides I've looked at, they, they don't really put a lot of detail into. Right, yeah, that's probably a little too much for <laughs> your, your average D&D reader. That's in Volo's uh, additional guide, the uh, the Midnight Guide. Volo's erotic guide to <laughs> monsters. <Yeah. laughs> um, okay, so we've talked a lot about this on the side, but let's really get into it. The Elder Brain. So can you imagine, like... If we just had rather, rather than like, um, a boss at mm-hmm. work, instead where your boss's office is, there's just a big baby pool that's filled with cerebral <laughs> fluid and a giant brain. And that's what tells you what your duties are for the day. I'm picturing it right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I could probably get behind it after, after a while. Yeah. Yeah. You could trust an elder brain. Yeah, I mean, it's the elder brain. Who's to, who's going to question the elder brain? But what, you? I certainly wouldn't know, but uh, Dritzto Erden did. That's a spoiler mm. for that book, Exile. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, yeah, so this is actually a quote from it, and I, I'm going to give you a little bit of an idea of from the prose what they're like. 
The inside of the giant stone structure was ringed by balconies and spiraling stairways, each level housing several of the mine flayers. But it was the bottom chamber, unadorned and circular, that held the most important being of all, the central brain. Fully 20 feet in diameter, this boneless lump of pulsating flesh tied the mine flayer community together in telepathic symbiosis. The central brain was the composite of their knowledge, the mental eye that guarded their outside chambers and which had heard the warning cries of the illithid from the drow city many miles to the east to the illithids of the community the central brain was the coordinator of their entire existence and nothing short of their god thus only a very few slaves were allowed with this special tower captives with sensitive and delicate fingers that could massage the illithid god thing and soothe it with tender brushes and warm fluids. Oh, so it's a little insight into what goes on with the elder brains. <laughs> well, you got to keep the, the elder brain well scrubbed. Yeah, yeah, it's like constantly like at a day spa. Yeah. So again, you get back into this idea that either they developed this over time, or they evolved to have the elder brain as part of their their biology essentially mm. um but part of their their just their their life cycle i tend to like the idea that they they developed it or they turned to it uh after the fall because the mind flayers endlessly plot the restoration of their empire and to do so they have to maintain a perfect balance of secrecy and exploration ever clawing out the the shortest uh, safest path much like the the spacing guild in the Dune. Oh novels, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I can see parallels. They can't there. make big risks because because yeah. if they don't pay off, they could lose everything. Right. Uh, so to survive and to make the necessary meta calculations here, the Elithids have this elder brain. Uh, again, giant, immobile thought organ in a tank of brine. It's the colony's library of knowledge, a history of all their past lives. When they die, their return, their their own brains are returned mm-hmm. to the elder brain. It's a, a nexus of metacognition for the individuals in the colony, and likewise, kind of serves the the thralls as well. You know what that sounds like to me? What cyborgism? Yeah, except for it's using organic material. It sounds very much like what we talked about in our episode on cyborgism. Yeah, I mean, it. I couldn't help but think about human computing. Yeah, the entire right. system resembles in many ways human information networking systems and the ever-evolving supercomputers that manage it. We're talking the externalization and interconnectivity of thought. And as we drift ever closer to the technological singularity, when computer superintelligence truly eclipses that of humanity, it seems like we could be approaching our own age of the elder brain right yeah i mean well think about it the cloud the way everybody talks about the cloud we're just like offloading information to the cloud and i i don't know i mean i guess we do have like people whose whole job is to maintain the cloud i don't know that they're necessarily giving it uh delicate finger massages but you know Mm -hmm. they they work inside these data centers that house all this information yeah that's our version of the elder we put all of our human knowledge into it we put all these details about our daily life yeah even when we die information about us lives on yeah yeah i mean what yeah what is the internet what is the cloud but an elder brain and you know the more i think about it I would, I think I'd be okay with trusting, I'd, I'd be, I'd feel safer trusting the world to an elder brain or, yeah. or in the, the human uh, variation here, a super advanced artificial intelligence. Yeah. So you're ready to give up to Skynet at this point. You're like, maybe it'll do a better job than we have. 
it's kind of the Skynet situation, right? Yeah, because yeah. the mind flayers are saying, "Look, if we screw this up, we're done. We're doomed. We're done." Right. Yeah. So let's 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 have this elder brain that's going to take care of all of those uh, choices for us, and this way we can survive and maybe even rise again. Yeah, and so I'm trying to think too, like parallels of this. If you, you know, like, so in the stories of mind flayers, mm-hmm. basically they'll protect the elder brain at all costs. Uh, it's, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I think it's a pretty high level monster to fight an elder brain or something, right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Like, they're pretty powerful. Like they'll just like psychically wipe you out if you try to hurt them. But, but like imagine if you just destroyed the internet, you just took out the cloud. Now I know that's like, you know, pretty much as much fantasy as mind flayers at this point, right? But like, a world right now without all of that data backed up that we've got would be an utter chaos. Mm-hmm. And so what are we going to do for now? We're going to protect it at all costs, right? Yeah. That's like information is our primary resource right now. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. You sound like a modern human. You also sound like a mind flayer in saying that. Yeah. Which brings us back again to this area, this idea that yeah, the mind flayers are essentially us. Yeah. They may yeah. have tentacles. They may eat more brains than we do on a daily basis, but they're essentially humans with a, with a very similar, uh, reliance on information and informational systems. Um, so think about that the next time you encounter one in uh, one of your adventures. Yeah, absolutely. Be a little bit more humane with the mind flayers that you may be uh, attacking. Yes, inhuman as before, they are. Before you roll your initiative, think <laughs> twice. All right, so there you have it. The Illithid, the Mind Flayer, uh, again, a fun Dungeons & Dragons monster, an iconic Dungeons & Dragons monster that was referenced in Season 2 of Stranger Things. Yes, yeah, suddenly, all of a sudden, it's way more relevant to people who aren't just D&D nerds like us or monster fans. Yeah. So if you watched Stranger Things Season 2 and you thought that this helped out or you thought, hey, wait a minute, that's not like a Mind Flayer at all, you guys describe the real Mind Flayer, write to us. We're on social media all over the place. Place. You can get us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. That's right. You can head on over to the mothership, stufftoblowyourmind.com, and you'll find all the episodes we've done before, including uh, there was one, What Does Mind Control Feel Like, that uh, Joe and I did. And then all three of us jumped in on the live Stranger Things episode uh, just a couple of months ago. Yeah, exactly. So the other way that you can get in touch with us is the direct way. That, And I'm not talking about telepathy. I'm talking about email here. That's blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.